Good morning, and welcome to our time in the Lord's Word. We're going to be examining Galatians chapter 2 as Tom continues his series through this book. And this morning, I'll be reading from verse 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Father, may we take away from these words life and learn and live what you would have us to know. Thank you for Tom, and I pray for your spirit to be on him as he teaches this morning. We commit this time to your hands in Christ's name. Amen. If a man says to you that he dearly loves his wife, but every time you see them together, he treats her worse than you treat your worst enemy, barking orders at her and never showing her kindness or tenderness or gentleness, what will you actually conclude about whether that man loves his wife or doesn't love his wife? What message will get through to you about his love for his wife once his actions have been factored in? If an auto mechanic shop brags in its advertisements about the quality of its work and the integrity of its workers, but then you go online and you read 38 customer reviews and you discover that the average rating for that shop is one out of five stars. Are you likely to take your car to that shop? Will that information about the company's actual performance change the message that comes through to you about their quality and integrity? There's an adage that I know everyone here has heard many times. Actions speak louder than words. From a biblical perspective, I have to say that adage is true. In the passage we just read, that Joe just read, Paul is telling the Galatian believers about an event that had happened in another Gentile city, not in Galatia, in Syrian Antioch. And that event involved Paul. It involved Paul's faithful co-worker Barnabas and others. But the focus of that event is the Apostle Peter. And the reason that Paul includes the narrative of that event in this epistle at this point is to forcefully make a point that the Galatians need to reckon with. And that point is, when our actions contradict our gospel, what people actually hear from us is a false gospel. 
When our actions contradict our gospel, what people actually hear from us is a false gospel. The message gets changed. And since the world already has a whole football stadium full of false gospels, it's happy to, to get another one to throw in the mix. The current threat to the one true gospel of Jesus Christ that was beginning to get a foothold in the Galatian churches when Paul wrote this epistle to those churches was not a new threat. The church in Antioch was the very church that had been the launching pad for Paul's and Barnabas's ministry that ended up planting the churches he's writing to now, the churches in Galatia. When Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit on the first missionary journey, they were sent out from Antioch. Now the punchline to this passage actually ends up being the first verse of the next passage, chapter 3, verse 1. This passage that we're looking at this morning begins with a startling statement in chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And the first verse of the next passage, chapter 3, verse 1, begins with another startling statement in the form of a question. Only this time, it's pointed directly at his audience for this epistle at the Galatians. You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? See, Paul is laying out the account of an earlier scathing rebuke against Peter in Antioch in order to set the stage for repeating the same scathing rebuke against the Galatian believers. He's saying, in effect, brothers and sisters in Galatia, if you think God is going to turn a blind eye to what you're doing right now after he had me get in the face of the Apostle Peter and rebuke him in public? You need to think again. Paul is literally putting the fear of God into the Galatian saints by recounting this event. And this passage should put the fear of God into us too in a very constructive way. We don't get to mess with the gospel of grace. When we do, we can be sure that the giver of grace is going to mess with us. And that's what I call a gracious threat. I want to show you where we're going this morning. We're going to look at this passage about Paul's rebuke of Peter in four four pieces. First, the crisis. What gave rise to this rebuke? Secondly, the cause of that crisis. And then the cure for the crisis, and finally, the call, God's, God's appeal to us and to the Galatian saints in reference to these things. And for each of those first three points, we're going to look first at what happened with Peter, and then we're going to talk about the ramifications of it for us. First, the crisis that made this rebuke necessary. Not just necessary, but absolutely critical. In fact, historically critical to the history of the New Testament church. The first half of Galatians 2 had ended on a, on a very high note. 
Paul's visit to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the mostly Jewish mother church in Jerusalem had gone surprisingly well. When Paul went to meet with those leaders and to set before them the gospel that he had been preaching among the Gentiles, he wasn't sure how they were going to respond. Because the Judaizers who had come into the Gentile churches, especially in Galatia, had been telling those churches that those same leaders that Paul was going to go meet with in Jerusalem were preaching a different gospel than he was. A gospel that required Gentiles to be circumcised, to observe Jewish festivals, and to observe many other Jewish, uh, many other aspects of the law of Moses in order to be considered real Christians. But Paul's fears quickly faded away when James and Peter and John in Jerusalem welcomed him and his friends, Barnabas, a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile who had gone with Paul, welcomed them as brothers in Christ and fully acknowledged Paul's ministry among the Gentiles as God's counterpart to Peter's ministry among the Jews. That was cause for great rejoicing. God had already accomplished an amazing level of unity between two groups that had historically butted heads against each other and wanted to have as little to do with each other as possible, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he had brought each of those groups to embrace the same gospel independently of each other. But now, in just one verse, things went from great awful. And that verse is Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There's a lot of very illuminating historical background to all of this in the book of Acts in chapters 9 to 15. And I'm not going to get to review that history because of time constraints. But I strongly recommend that you go look at it. In those chapters, among many other things, you'll see that God had already clearly revealed to Peter that he, God, intended to save both Jews and Gentiles and to make them one people. He also revealed very clearly to Peter that Gentiles were not required to act like Jews. And he used Peter to convince prominent Jewish Christians of that very reality before this event. Even though all these miraculous things had been accomplished by God, many of them through Peter, Peter nonetheless got off course. God had made it clear, crystal clear to Peter in Acts 10 that Gentiles were not required to eat kosher diet. Uh, He had made it clear to Peter that Gentiles were not required to be circumcised. They were not required to keep the Jewish religious calendar or to do any other Jewish things in order to be God's people. And guess what? (laughs) Neither were the Jews. God had given Peter a vision in which he commanded Peter, a Jew, to eat animals that the law of Moses had expressly declared to be unclean and forbidden. And Peter, if you know Peter, this is no surprise, refused. (laughs) He explained to God that he was a Jew. 
And he had never eaten unclean food. But God, another big surprise, didn't change his mind. And Peter ultimately got the point. And the point, beloved, wasn't about food. It was about people. It was about God declaring Gentiles clean. God made it crystal clear that he was building one household of God from both Jews and Gentiles and that he was making no distinction between the two. When Peter first came to the Gentile city of Antioch, his actions corresponded beautifully with this this amazing reality that God had taught him. Galatians 2.12 says that Peter had been eating with Gentiles. Now, this wasn't Jerusalem the stronghold of Jewish Christianity. This was Antioch. And Antioch was decidedly Gentile. By by some reckoning, it was maybe one-tenth Jewish. So in order for a Jew to eat with Gentiles in an overwhelmingly Gentile city like Antioch, that Jew had to set aside the dietary restrictions demanded by the law of Moses. In other words... In order for a Jew to eat with Gentiles in Antioch, he had to act like a Gentile and not like a Jew. And that's exactly what Peter had been doing. And that was very, very good. See, Peter had been confirming with his actions the same gospel that he was proclaiming with his words. But then, some men showed up in Antioch identified by Paul as certain men from James. And these men were Judaizers. Paul calls them the party of the circumcision. That doesn't mean they were the only ones there that were circumcised. (laughs) It means that they were making a very big deal about circumcision. These guys were preaching the same distorted gospel to which Paul had referred back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. A fake gospel that identified those men as fake Christians and as accursed men. These men were from the same group that Paul had gone head to head with according to chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. Many referred to there as false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. These guys were spiritual slave traders. Now, the connection of James with this whole mess has been much debated because of this phrase, certain men from James. But Paul's focus here is not on James, so mine won't be either. It's not even on Barnabas, his dear co-worker. His focus here is very decidedly on the apostle Peter, who was known among the Jews by his Aramaic name, Cephas or Cephas. Peter's involvement in this painful episode is a very big deal. Paul acknowledged Peter in the last passage as Christ's chosen ambassador to the Jews just as surely as Paul was Christ's chosen ambassador to the Gentiles. But Paul says here that he got right in the face of the man considered by many to be the most respected apostle of Jesus Christ in the whole world at that point. And Paul very sternly rebuked him. 
Verse 14 tells us that that rebuke was made in the presence of all. In other words, it wasn't private. It was public. And why did Paul rebuke Peter? For what offense? Well, Paul tells us very explicitly in verse 12. He says, when these men from James showed up, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. In the culture of that day, you could not separate dining from fellowship. Great conversations were the conversations had over great meals. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram or texting. They didn't even have anything as archaic as email or hardwired telephones. I was alive when those existed. Friendships were cultivated in the context of shared meals. And by the way, that's still one of the very best ways to cultivate a friendship. But Peter had stopped eating or associating with Gentiles. And according to verse 12, he had begun to withdraw and hold himself aloof. He was giving a cold shoulder to the Gentiles. And no doubt, because of Peter's powerful reputation, that change in behavior toward the Gentiles caught on like Ebola. Verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews, meaning the rest of the Jews in the city of Antioch, the second or third largest city in the Roman Empire, joined Peter in his hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by that hypocrisy. Now what were they doing that was hypocritical? They were preaching one thing and doing another. Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 14. He gives us the very words that he spoke to Peter in the presence of all. He said to Peter, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you're not practicing what you preach. In fact, you're not even practicing what you've been practicing. What you're practicing is pure hypocrisy. And the same applies to Barnabas and to all the Jewish Christians in Antioch who were following your lead. And Paul's assessment of the impact of this hypocrisy on the proclamation of the gospel is also explicit. He says that the rebuke that he brought to Peter was made absolutely necessary when he saw that Peter and Barnabas were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Now this is the second time in chapter 2 that the phrase the truth of the gospel shows up. The first time was when Paul explained how he had responded to the Judaizers at some previous point when he had gone toe-to-toe with them. And in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said he did not give even an inch to these men he calls spies, these spiritual slave traders. And the reason he didn't give an inch was in order that the truth of the gospel might remain with you, with you Gentile Galatian Christians. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that was at stake here. But it wasn't a rank heretic that Paul was rebuking. It was the apostle Peter. 
along with his own trusted co-worker Barnabas, who had been right with him as Paul and Barnabas had planted these churches to whom he was writing. It was the actions of those men that were effectively changing and negating their message. By giving the cold shoulder to the Gentile believers in Antioch, by refusing to eat with them, Peter was actually denying the message that he had preached. And the message he was trashing wasn't some peripheral doctrine that made little difference. It was the one and only true gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so Peter denied the gospel without a word by refusing to to fellowship with the Gentiles. How do we deny the gospel without a word? And what I mean by without a word isn't that words have nothing to do with it. What I mean is, how do we deny the gospel without deliberately, intentionally preaching a false gospel? See, I don't believe Christians, real Christians, go around saying things that directly deny the gospel. Paul didn't. Peter didn't. Barnabas didn't. The New Testament calls people who proclaim a false gospel false prophets. And it numbers them among the eternally cursed. In fact, both, both Testaments do. Look at Deuteronomy 13, 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter and Barnabas and James were not false prophets. They weren't directly teaching a false gospel. And they didn't believe a false gospel but they were acting as if they did. They were acting as if they did. And the effect was to change the gospel that others were hearing from them. From the true one to a false one. How do we do that same thing? Beloved, the biggest threat to the purity of our gospel proclamation is not bad theology. It's bad practice. And the wrong behavior that contradicts the right message is Satan's playground. He absolutely loves it when we go there. See, Satan is not trying to get advocates of false gospels to contradict their message. (laughs) It's the true gospel that he wants us to contradict. Us who believe it. And every time we do, the deceiver starts whispering in the ears of those who are listening to us and watching us. And he says to them, watch more closely. They don't even believe what they're telling you about the good news of Jesus Christ. So why should you? They don't really believe that righteousness is a free gift from God. Look at how they treat people who don't eat what they eat and do what they do. They believe that righteousness is about what people do. Not about who people trust. If they didn't, they wouldn't be acting that way. That's what Satan loves to point out. We come up with all kinds of creative ways to make the good news of righteousness, righteousness that comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, look like a gospel of righteousness that comes from keeping the right list of rules. Christians regularly and often publicly rake each other over the coals over disagreements about politics, economics, 
yoga, karate, Halloween, proper nutrition, vaccinations, Harry Potter, social drinking, how to discipline children, which styles and volumes of music qualify as Christian, whether big churches are better than small churches, whether satellite churches are better than standalone churches, and I'm just getting started. The point is not that none of those things are worth talking about. The point is that none of those things make us righteous. Wherever we stand on those things, that's not what makes us righteous. But the priority and the passion that we assign to them makes it look like we think they do. Especially, especially when we let any of those things drive a wedge between us and any other believer or any other Bible-believing church. Galatians 5.6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Instead of worrying about all the stuff in that list and a couple hundred other things, how about if we focus on whether the things that we do and say demonstrate clearly that we trust and love the God who raised our useless, dead, rotting souls from the grave and gave us His Son's perfect righteousness as a gift. That we trust and love the God who by His doing alone purifies us from our gross uncleanness and makes us fit to dwell with Him forever. By His doing alone. We should be so overwhelmed with the grace of God that we can't talk about Christianity or church or sin or righteousness or much of anything else without talking about grace! Of course, it's not just legalism, a focus on rule-keeping that trashes our gospel proclamation. My dear brother Bob Richardson shared a great quote with me yesterday. It shows up between two tracks of the old DC Talk album, Jesus Freaks. It goes like this. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Christ with their lips then walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What does it do to the wonderful message of God's righteousness freely given to men when we proclaim it with our lips and then act as if the things that God calls righteous don't really matter? When we watch the same ridiculously hyper-sexualized movies and TV shows that this God-denying world calls entertainment, when we listen to music and watch music videos that shamelessly raise a defiant fist against God's design for sex, for purity of speech, and for gentleness of spirit. When we crave things and find security in money and possessions and retirement accounts instead of in God. Now you may say, well, Tom, it sounds like you're contradicting what you just said. You said it's not what we do that makes us righteous. No. I'm talking about two different denials of grace and therefore of the gospel of grace. The first 
denies grace by making righteousness out to be man's work instead of God's. The second makes grace irrelevant by denying that the free gift of that righteousness that comes from God alone even matters. I believe the number one reason that lost people are not impressed with the gospel of Jesus Christ is because the ambassadors of Jesus Christ insist on keeping one foot in the world. God calls that spiritual adultery. And by the way, the world clearly recognizes the gross contradiction between that kind of life and the gospel that we're, that we're proclaiming. So why don't we recognize the contradiction? The crisis that Paul is addressing in this passage was not a temporary matter. And it doesn't manifest itself in just one way. We are in a war for the purity of the gospel that will have no truce until Jesus comes back. And that's fine because we're on the winning side. But that does not mean that we get to stop keeping watch over the gospel of grace. That's the crisis. But what's the cause? What is it that makes Christians undermine and even deny the gospel by their actions? Well, what made Peter betray the gospel? It wasn't some kind of calculated denial on Peter's part of the gospel of grace. It was that was not that Peter had stopped believing the things that he had been courageously proclaiming and defending both to Jews and to Gentiles for a long time before this episode recorded in this passage. What made his behavior betray his message is right at the end of verse 11. When the Judaizers from Jerusalem showed up in Antioch, Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter was afraid of upsetting or offending these men who were supposedly representing James, the elder of the Jerusalem church, the brother of Jesus. Paul had already, in chapter 1, verse 10, warned the Galatians of the catastrophic impact of seeking to please men instead of God. There is no such thing, he made the point, there is no such thing as having one foot on one of those paths and the other foot on the other. We either please Jesus or we please men. We've got to pick one or the other. What made Peter betray the gospel was fear of men. I ask again, does that mean Peter was a heretic? Absolutely not. But if he had not repented when Paul confronted him, if he had persisted in refusing to fellowship with the Gentile saints over a meal, he would have been guilty of propagating heresy. Peter betrayed the gospel because he feared men. What makes us betray the gospel? What makes us negate our message with our behavior? Well, if we're paying any attention to the passage, we'd have to conclude that at least one major cause of such betrayal is the fear of men. In fact, it would be hard to come up with anything that stifles the clear proclamation of the gospel more than the fear of men. And guys, I speak firsthand. I've been in conversations more than once with someone who had no reluctance at all to share his off-the-wall faith or philosophy. 
while I beat around the bush and it never actually got around to talking about things like sin and death and righteousness and redemption and the cross of Jesus Christ. As if the risk of offending that person was a bigger deal than exposing them to the real gospel by which people are saved. You may say, well, not sharing the gospel because you're afraid of offending men is not quite the same as sharing the false gospel. Really? When we're sheepish and timid about clearly proclaiming the good news, but we say in comfortable company that that gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Does our behavior match up with or negate what we're saying. What reason does Paul give in Romans 1.16 for being unashamed of the gospel? What the gospel is. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So if we are ashamed of the gospel, we are in effect saying that it's not what God says it is. Another big factor that drives us to behave in ways that contradict the gospel is simply a fear of change. (laughs) Paul said in chapter 1 that before Jesus lay hold of him, he was more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions than pretty much any of the other Jews that he knew. That doesn't just happen with unbelievers. Old habits are like warm beds. We like to stay in them because they're comfortable. But uncomfortable change is absolutely necessary if we're going to take the gospel to lost people because lost people don't live in comfortable places. Fear of the unknown, fear of discomfort, discomfort, fear of being ensnared in other people's lives, and struggles, fear of interruption to our very important entertainment schedules. All those fears have to be replaced by faith working through love. Now, we could go on for hours about the ways that our behavior contradict our message, but we got to press on. I hope that just at least sparks some, some thinking. That's the crisis, the cause of the crisis, Now let's talk about the cure for the crisis. How did God deal with Peter's betrayal of the gospel? What was the cure, God's cure, to this threat against his gospel that was coming from men at the highest level of leadership in his church? (laughs) Well, God tapped his designated hitter on the shoulder and said, Paul, this one's yours. And of course, it didn't take any arm twisting on the part of God to get Paul into the fray. Paul loved the gospel of God and the God of the gospel far too much to let Peter's functional denial of the gospel stand. Peter was in Paul's God-assigned territory, Gentile territory. (laughs) And Peter's behavior was making it look like the Judaizers were right. Like the only way for a Gentile to be counted as a member of the body of Christ was for him to, in effect, become a Jew. 
So God's ambassador to the Gentiles stepped up to the plate to straighten out God's ambassador to the Jews, and the plate was Peter's face. And what happened next was in-your-face grace. Paul didn't pull his punches even a little. I believe that after this very harsh and uncompromising rebuke from Paul, Peter got right back on track. Peter's a marvelous example for real people like us. (laughs) He's the guy who always says what the rest of us are thinking. He's the one who keeps doing with no subtlety the same sinful things that the rest of us do, but are very good at covering up and skillfully denying. (laughs) Peter's the one who repeatedly comes right out and says, Jesus, you've got this wrong. I know you're God and everything, but you've got this wrong. No, Jesus, you can't wash our feet. Are you kidding? No, Jesus, you can't let yourself be killed. I would never let that happen. No, Jesus, you say that I'm going to deny you? I would never deny you. No, Lord, you're telling me I have to eat unclean things that only Gentiles eat? I've never done that a day in my life, and I'm not about to start now. This is the guy who asked Jesus in Matthew 18, Lord, how many times must I forgive? Seven times? (laughs) Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Sometimes I think maybe Jesus was coming up with that number because that's how many times he had forgiven Peter. But what I find so beautiful about this dear, godly, passionate man is that he always turns right back to Jesus. Peter may be quick to fumble the ball at times, and I think now that's four sports analogies for four different sports. But he always goes right back after that ball with a fervor that leaves smoke in his path. That's why God used Peter to start a wildfire for the gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and among the dispersed Jews way beyond Jerusalem. That's why God used Peter to defend the freedom that Gentile believers have from obligation to the law of Moses. That's why God used Peter to write two of the most courage-building books in the Bible. Books that are every ounce as relevant right now as they were the day they were written. You want to be ready for persecution? Saturate your mind and your heart for a good long while in the books of First and Second Peter. I believe that by the time the Galatians received this letter, Peter was zealously back on track. And you know how that happened? Over and over. (laughs) The head of the church made it happen for the sake of his gospel and for the sake of his bride. For the brief moment of history recorded in these four verses of Galatians, Peter's behavior contradicted his beliefs, and his message. But God used Paul to write that ship. That was a pivotal event in the history of the early church because in the end, both Peter and Paul got it right. As did Barnabas and James and John and countless others who might otherwise have drifted away further and further from the gospel of grace. 
and from the grace of the gospel. What made them get it right? God did. How does God deal with our betrayals of the gospel? Well, he used Paul to correct Peter. And he has all kinds of tools available to correct to correct us, including one another. The head of the church, I don't want you to be surprised by this, but the head of the church knows what he's doing. And there are a couple of primary instruments that he tends to use most often and most powerfully to right his ship. First is his word, and second is his people. And the only reason his people are in that very, very short list is because of his word. The more we know his word, the more useful we become to God for keeping his ship on course. The Holy Spirit is at work in us to make us useful for God. That we might will and work for his good pleasure. And there are two things in all of God's creation that God tells us His Spirit inhabits in a special and comparably powerful way. His Word and His people. And we need to get the fact that it is God, not us, who keeps that ship on course. And of course, what that means for us, and this is important, what that means for us is if it's God that does all the writing and steering, we need to be talking to Him. We who are utterly dependent on Him must be praying. All right, that's the crisis, the cause, and the cure. I'm going to wrap up real quickly by talking about the call. The appeal to us in light of this passage. Do you think that you are immune from lapsing into a functional denial of the Gospel like Peter And Barnabas did. Let me put the question differently. Do you think that your walk with God is so tight that you're way ahead of mere mortals like Peter and James and Barnabas? Beloved, if a man like Peter who knew Jesus as well as he did and loved Jesus as zealously as he did could so easily fall into a legalistic betrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what makes you think that you can't. More to the point, what makes you think that you're not prone to fall away from devotion to the gospel of grace? Paul's account of this painful episode in the life of every church and of the early church, which is here for your benefit and for mine, It's here for every child of God in every age since the saints in Galatia received this short, dynamite-filled letter. This account is here because it needed to be here. It's here because we are all prone to turn away from grace. I said in the first message of this series that we have a problem with grace. It's in our bones. More accurately, it's in that residue of our old sin nature that Paul calls the flesh the old man. At a visceral level, we just don't like the notion that we bring nothing to the table. We've got to get credit for something, don't we, God? But God, through His faithful servant Paul, says to us, it can't be about grace and still be about you. 
Paul didn't have uh, this confrontation with Peter or write these things to the Galatians because he loves a fight. That's not the way Paul was wired. He was an affectionate, tender, loving man. He did these things because he loves Jesus Christ and he loves the people that Jesus has redeemed by his amazing grace. As I said before, Paul is speaking in this letter in the mode of a loving father who sees his little son reaching for a beautiful glowing coal in the campfire. Through Paul, God is saying to the Galatian saints and to us, stop, turn around, and come back to the giver of grace. Come back to the gospel of grace so that He will be honored and so that it will be well with us individually and corporately. He's saying that if you don't stop, when you turn away from grace, if you do not stop and turn around and come back to grace, you will continue heading toward cursing and death instead of life and blessing. And he says to us, I'm not going to let that happen. God says to us, I love my church and I love my child too much to let that happen. So stop. Turn around and come back to grace. Dear Father, we are very, very grateful that the head of the church knows what he's doing. We pray, Lord, that you would have our attention Uh, just as sternly and strongly as you've got Peter's in this passage, that we would hear what you're saying, Lord. We would hear what you're saying and we would cling so tenaciously to the grace that you've poured out upon us in Jesus Christ that nothing, nothing could pry us away from it. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.